Beard on microphone. Everybody likes ASMR. People will really like my podcast now. Anyway, welcome to the Teardown Podcast. My name is Caleb Caswell. Uh, before we get into the interview with Craig Martell, I want to give a little bit of a background on what this whole thing is the Teardown, what the podcast is going to be, and a little bit of everything in between. So, um, I'm a musician in Edmonton. I've been playing. For a number of years, I went through the McCune Music Program, and then from there, I went out and I started playing the Wonder Bar, uh, the Haven Social Club, everything in between up to the Jubilee Auditorium. I've also done a fair amount of magazine writing. I've written for Avenue, The Journal, and Marker Magazine, which unfortunately isn't around anymore, but used to be one of the best places to find news about Edmonton's indie side, between the arts and the music and everything that you couldn't really find in any of those previous magazines. So the idea for this came from how Edmonton has a little bit of a hole in terms of what we talk about when it comes to our music community. We have people that love everything that comes out of Edmonton, and we have people that hate everything that comes out of Edmonton, but we don't really have anybody talking about the middle, talking about how things could be better, or bringing up bands that nobody's really talking about right now, but they should really be checked out. So hopefully the teardown fills a little bit of that void. The name for the teardown came from a term that musicians use when we finish a show, the audience is filing out and all the musicians get back up on stage and we start tearing down the equipment. And while we're tearing down the equipment, we start to talk and we talk about the audience. We talk about how the show went, things we really liked about it, things we didn't like about it, the venue, um, better gigs that we've had, awful gigs that we've had, and just very honest, open communication over what could be better and what is great and what we really enjoy. I'm really hoping to capture that spirit with the teardown, and I'm really hoping that from that, more people that are inside the community can get an idea of maybe what other people think, and people who are outside the music community, that maybe just come to shows and enjoy them when they can, can maybe get a look inside of what really goes on here and what happens in the Edmonton music scene. So for this podcast, every other week, I'm going to be going with somebody from the local scene, whether they are a musician, a promoter, uh, a venue owner, anybody that is from Edmonton or was from Edmonton and has maybe moved somewhere else. Uh, we're going to go to a show together and then go somewhere and talk about it. It's not necessarily going to be a review of what we just saw. It's just a jumping off point into other topics that interest us. So for this first episode, there's nobody more fitting to have been on it than Craig Martell. Craig Martell has been such a huge part of the Edmonton music scene over the last several years and has built something that's going to be around for several years to come. Obviously, I'm not talking about the Wonder Bar because the Wonder Bar is a laundromat now. I don't even really know what's going on out of there. But he's helped create a music community 
and a closeness between several bands and audience members that I don't think anybody had really seen in several years in Edmonton. If you want to know more about what Craig is up to, check out doublelunch.com. Um, he's got a couple of his running projects going on there. Go out into the city, pretty much almost any venue. Check out what bands he's got going on. And if you know what he looks like and you've never talked to him, take the time, go up, shake his hand. There's nobody smarter, nobody funnier, nobody kinder that you can talk to about Edmonton's music community, which is going to become very clear after listening to this interview. Without further ado, Craig Martell with the Teardown Podcast. sound like what it sounds like sure okay so we just came back from the needle seeing van funk and the LeBarons. possibly just van funk now we don't really know i think it might be just van funk now okay and who are you i'm craig martell what do you do around the city Ooh, i uh just started a record label i run double lunch productions and double lunch records i book shows at a number of venues uh my company is sort of the in-house talent buyer for the almanac Bohemia, the Sewing Machine Factory, and the Buckingham, with a couple more on the on the way. Okay, so what are you known for, though? Oh, I used to run Wonder Bar. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was my past endeavor. My first failed business. Um, I only run businesses that would have worked in 1994. <laughs> Live music venue, record label, maybe some print media coming soon. Pager store. <laughs> Quaaludes. I don't know what the era those were. I'll sell those. Now, okay, so a lot of people, and I think it's it's interesting because with the Wonder Bar, I think it's kind of similar to what this thing is going to be as far as it's almost designed to fail. Like, there's no way I can make this, like, monetizable in any sort of way. I, I think it's hard these days for most people I know to monetize their skills. I think we live in a... We live in a weird world where you don't need specific training anymore to do a lot of the things you do, whether you're a designer, illustrator, music booker, band, artist, um, across the board. Like people can teach themselves how to like build interesting furniture at home. So it's like, how do you monetize these things when in a lot of ways, I mean, when you're doing writing, someone could pay you to do it or they could get someone else who will do 60% of that for free. Right. So what I do, I'm really good at booking shows, but they could find some kid who will do it for nothing, not as well. So I think it's interesting trying to do like, do these things, you do these passion projects that matter, you know, do them unless they matter, and then hope that somehow we fluke into monetizing it, you know? But you don't actually think the Wonder Bar failed. I think the Wonder Bar failed. I mean, it inevitably failed. Every business, every bar inevitably fails. And I think that if you on paper look at the numbers, our books, we certainly failed. We never sure. made money. Um, and to own a business for six years that has never generated income seems silly. Like if that was, uh, if I had opened on an ice cream stand and it never generated money for six years, I'd have been like, that was a waste of six years of my life. <laughs> I guess people like frozen yogurt. Yeah. And... But with Wonder Bar, there's so many side benefits that helped me out personally, and I think helped Edmonton out, that you could say it was a success in those ways. Right. But at the same time, like, I still couldn't buy a new car, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah. Like all the good feels in the world don't equate to the things I need to live, unfortunately. And we were talking before about, I mean, every time that you walk outside or you're inside, it really doesn't matter. You know 10 people in your immediate proximity. Absolutely. And it's uh, that's interesting because I'm not as social a person as you think I am. Right. Um, I'm very uh, anxious a lot of the time. There's a lot of situations I can't put myself in. And uh, if you see me at shows, at Wonder Bar is always bartending. Mm-hmm. And because I can be behind a bar, I can still bartend and do that. If I'm in a crowd, I get really uncomfortable and I'm outside smoking a lot because I just can't be in that situation. Is it just small spaces? Like, what is it? It's small spaces. It's noise. It's just like sensory overload in a lot of ways. Um, I've also just gotten used to it's like muscle memory to be doing something at a show. Mm. So we'll like travel to, and we'll go to see a band and I'll be in the U.S. at a bar I've never been to. And I'm like watching my favorite band, but I'm also bussing glasses because <laughs> that's, so weird. that's what I feel like I should be doing. Yeah. And then like the bartender's like, thanks. And the porter's <laughs> like, fuck off. It's my job. So, okay. We just came from the show at the needle watching. What was the name of the band again? Van Funk. And you've seen them, or you've seen members of the band several times. Um, Van Funk, I think I've only had at Wonder Bar twice. Um, one of the members of Van Funk used to hang out there all the time. Yeah. They're, they're an interesting band because a lot of the bands that she supports and the music scene she's part of aren't necessarily stylistically a good fit for Van Funk. Mm-hmm. So and it's, it's weird that way. I mean, a lot of times friendship transcends genres when it comes to bands. You know, like... You, if you're in a metal band and your friends in a country band, who knows? Maybe we'll play a show together. Who cares? You're all friends. Yeah. But sometimes that doesn't work. So she would be supporting a lot of the noise bands and experimental bands. But her band, Van Funk, aren't that. You know, they're quite catchy and a little. Yeah. Like, what would you? I I don't want to use. I don't want to use the term generic. Um, it's like a blues. I think it, I think it's a take on like your typical blues. It's not even really funk. No, there's no funk. Yeah. But I would say it's blues based for sure, like bluesy rock and roll. Right. And uh, they've done it well for a long time. And it's just, I don't think, I'm not comfortable booking anything blues related. I don't know right. people who would go. But uh, some of the best people. So I'm glad that was a show we showed up to. Yeah. And the musicianship was super solid. The fact that her dad, I have a dad who's a bass player. Yeah. So I love bass players first off. And then whenever somebody has their dad playing in their band, it's rad yeah yeah almost always yeah (laughs) um so i think i think a lot of people would feel the same way that i do where it's like craig martell's tastes are going to be some of the more eccentric off the wall sort of things and then we can go and see a band like that and i know that you're smart enough and you examine things enough that you're going to be able to find the good in anything, even if it's not your jam. And you talk about bands like that all the time where it's like, not my thing, but you know, this is great. This is great. This is great. So when you go to a show, like how do you listen to music? I think it's, that part of me has changed a lot and it's changed out of necessity being a promoter and owning a bar. So I was talking to two guys last night who are friends of mine, like acquaintances of mine, I suppose, who I quite like. And we were talking about music We were talking about an upcoming show that I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing a Home Shake show. And Home Shake is an amazing Edmonton performer who kind of rose from being one of my favorite, being the sole member of one of my favorite bands in Edmonton history. 
And he started this new project and completely disowned his old band. Took their music down from online. He won't talk about it. And their, I think their discography is perfect. Mm-hmm. And he always impressed me with his understanding of what he likes being completely black and white. So he knows what he likes. And it's very few things. And everything else sucks. <laughs> so he'll be like, oh, that sucks. No, yeah. it sucks. And I'm like, it doesn't suck. It's actually quite good. It's just not for you. And he's like, no, it sucks. And I can't be that my way in my job. So there's a lot of bands that I love, but it's hard to separate the music from the rest of it. You know, are they super tight as a band? Are they reliable? Are they nice people? Do their shows have a good vibe? Yeah. But if they, if I buy the record, and those, if those things are good, I will buy the record. But I might not listen to the record ever. Right. So my tastes are actually quite narrow, the stuff that I love. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of stuff I think is okay. And there's some stuff that style-wise I won't book because I know I won't find the good in it. Yeah. And so I avoid it altogether because I don't want to meet someone and really like them and really want to support them but not like at all what they're doing. So what's your opinion on like separating the artist from art it's become harder over time yeah. i mean it's i never i have a rule where i never want to meet my heroes and i feel like they'll always disappoint me mm-hmm. and if i have loved someone and they've influenced me in a lot of ways for a lot of years to not be able to and i don't know them at all i i often my favorite musician i don't know anything about them personally and that's totally cool because yeah. i don't want to i just want to love their art and it is hard like we had a show at a sewing machine factory the other day with a band from Chicago playing. And I was talking to my friend Tabitha, who was working the door. And Tab said, This band is so great and they're the nicest people. Yeah. And that makes me happy because they're assholes and they're good. I'm mad. Yeah. And if they're really nice and they suck, I'm mad. <laughs> you know, because you want both if you have to meet them. Yeah. And I agreed. Um, and I think meeting people, I can overlook the fact that they play music I don't like if I really like them and see their passion. And passionless musicians, I have no room for. <laughs> I think I think for me, I'm never going to... The only time I hate a band is when they try and present themselves as caring more than they actually do. And there's one band, I can't... It's a good thing I can't remember their name because I don't want to shit talk anybody on here, but... The only thing I really remember about them is that they had like they wore animal masks in like a music video or something else. And I saw them at On the Rocks and they get up to play and they're doing their whole rock out thing and they're super sweaty and they're like down on the floor and they're in front of their amps. And you could see like most of the people in the audience that were just like super into it. And I look around at all the other musicians that are standing there with their arms crossed and it's like, this is ass. This is right. the worst. And they can't like they just can't even keep up with what they want their image to be. Yeah, it's um I was talking to I had a band play Rock for Dollars last week and I never met them. They just signed up. And I saw this guy sitting with the band who I recognized, and um it's this older guy who plays in a band I booked once. Yeah. And it turns out this is his kid's band. And I meet the kid and I immediately like him. He's just this charismatic, kind of like 
in some ways, he's almost like a, like a too handsome, like tall, too handsome guy <laughs> who's so nice. And you know right off the bat, he's like this loving, caring guy. And he went up on stage, and to be honest, the band didn't look like they'd be much. Like, they didn't... You know when you start playing music, and you play in a band with just some people you know? And you don't share tastes or anything, you're just sort of like, well, I play drums, and you play bass, and you play guitar, so we have a band. Yeah. And aesthetically, it looks wrong. These guys <laughs> look wrong. Yeah. And they're uh, they're all wearing... Two of them wore... Uh, like fuzzy onesies, despite the fact it was super hot. <laughs> yeah. And the bass player must have just not had one. So they gave him like a horse head mask. <laughs> and they start and they shred like they're crazy players. And I still don't know exactly what they sound like because they only played their two songs in a cover. Right. But they had, by Rock for Dollar standards, I feel that's a night that's not about you as the band. You go up there and you play your songs. It's not about like big intros. We intro your band. You go and you play your songs. And he was kind of like, Okay, everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. What I need you to do is like cheer a bunch. We're going to start this song with a big jump. When you get home, tell your friends how awesome our band are. And next time, because I know you think we're awesome. And next time, they're all <laughs> going to come and they're going to think we're awesome too. And it was so likable. And yeah. it was so real. And people in the crowd had so much fun. And like they're a young band, but seasoned musicians were there who were like, that was great. That was a great band. Like, I don't really like the music yet, but they're a great band. Yeah. And watching them do that, and I've seen really seasoned bands kind of go up and like put on this phony persona of passion, of this phony like playing a show to 10 people at Wonder Bar and being like, how are you tonight, Edmonton? Are you ready to rock and roll? And I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> like That's horseshit. And it's really hard to watch someone fake that because I'd rather no passion than fake passion. Right. And it's funny, too, where... I feel like being a McEwen kid, um, I'm kind of set up to really look for technique right. in a lot of stuff. Um, and the perfect show for me is something that kind of matches that technique with like a vulnerability and an honesty, which is so hard to find. It's way harder to find vulnerability in music, I think, than than any technique. I know tons of assholes that are super good players, but I would never pick up anything that they've done. And then on the other hand, like I've been to shows at Bohemia where there were bands that they like half of them could barely play their instruments, but they were trying so hard that halfway through the set, it was like, I'm into this. Absolutely. And I think that the difference there is there's, you have to understand that music, there's a science to music, but it's an art. And there's a few ways people misunderstand that. I think number one is being a good player is great. And if you are, if you go to school for music, let's say, and you want to be like a session player, or you just want to be really good at your instrument, music school will help you do that. But if you're a tasteless motherfucker who doesn't <laughs> have any like understanding of what you want to be, mm -hmm. and then you come out and you think that going to music school is going to automatically make you write interesting songs, you're lying to yourself. Yeah. That's not how that works. And... Walking that line is interesting. It's also another thing that bothers me about this sort of art versus science and business, all these things tied in that tie into music, is when you meet a band who are really good players, and they've all, let's say, for example, gone to school and spent money learning their instrument, and they start a band, and nobody cares. And nobody goes to their shows. And they're upset because they're not getting paid more. Well, the way music works, in an ideal world, everyone will get paid. The way music works is that if your band playing can bring out 10 people 
and some 20-year-old who can barely play can bring out 500 people, that kid gets paid more. Right. He might not be as good a musician, but art is art is art. I could go home and throw paint at a canvas, and if the right people thought it was worth something, it's worth something. Your value is only as much as the audience is willing to pay. And music I used to I used to bash McEwen a lot. And it was because <laughs> and not just McEwen, but all music schools. Yeah. Because a ton of amazing performers who have done amazing things have come out of there. And a ton of hacks have come out of there. And a ton of people who I just can't work with who are very good, but what they do doesn't interest me. Mm. And um, I was talking to last night a friend who went to McEwen and talked with him and one of his friends who went to McEwen. And they were both involved in kind of like the really hip underground Edmonton scene. Yeah. And on the side, the two of them were playing session gigs and like hired gun gigs. And they both their dads were kind of hired guns. And they were like, he's like, I was a born sellout, man. Like, he's like, I play in bands with my friends where I don't expect to get paid and I believe in the music and I love it. But if you offer me enough money, I'll do anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and that's cool because you can do that, right? Like, you have that ability and you can monetize that. But at the same time, if you're playing with someone who kind of stinks and he's paying you well, you have the wherewithal to be like, that side gig kind of stinks. Yeah. But I'm getting paid well. Like, you don't take the pride in that that you would take in the art you're making on your own. And that's the difference. And I think, like, there's a young generation of kids coming through Grant McEwen right now who blow me away. And I think it's because the last few years have graduated some of the most interesting musicians in the most interesting bands. And that's influencing the younger kids who are going through now. They're seeing what they do. And, yeah, they can still take, like, gigs on the side that'll pay them. But they're like, man, they're playing, like, groundbreaking music. Yeah. And it's cool. And I want to do that. And I don't have to form like an eight piece all white guy funk band. <laughs> but man, they make so much money though. <laughs> oh. Um two points. Sure. Uh one, I mean when we were talking about like the gigs you take and the gigs you don't take, like I love this, but I'm not getting paid for it. I had a teacher when I was in McEwen in a professionalism class. Right. Which is funny. It's a funny name for a class. Anyway, uh and he said three pillars of any gig, it pays really well, it's fun, and it's career advancing. It only has to be two of the three. Right. And it's very rare. If you find one that's all three, you hold on to that gig till you're dead. But, yes, I mean, so often, um, to then kind of like segue into another point, like personally, in my growth as a musician, I came out of McEwen, and my father being a like professional jazz gigging bass player, does musicals, does all this other stuff. It was all about, like, he's not really an artist. He's more of a crafts craftsman. Sure, that's fair. Shows up, gets the blueprint, does it better than anybody else, is really known for that. And so I kind of came out, was raised in that expectation, did a couple of bands um, that were like, I was learning a lot of Latin music, so I went into a band that was world music. Cool. And it was... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, cool. And... Did that, and it was all stuff that was like, nobody's doing this because it's really hard, and it's so intellectual, and nobody gets it, but that's kind of what's awesome about it. And then I went, and I quit that band after a while, and I picked up some other band where it was kind of like that whole thing where it's a bunch of friends that don't really have the same interests. A couple of the guys like weren't trained musicians. A couple of guys were. And it was the first time. It was like just butt rock, just four on the floor with a backbeat, like idiot music. 
yeah. super easy to play, wasn't challenging. And that was like the first time I really started to learn how to be like spiritually involved with what I was playing. Right. And going back into the intellectual stuff where I'd never really encountered it in that way, like with jazz, with all of the other stuff, and I started putting that heart into that style of music, it totally changed how I played and it totally opened up music to me, I guess, in a new way. Yeah, and I, I think that uh and that, that totally makes sense because I think a lot of what people can get lost and can sort of drown in for their entire careers is that number one, especially when you're playing music at an, like you said, when you were looking at music as this is really hard, therefore right. it is quality in a way. Um I I found I learned a lot when I started promoting and I've probably put on more noise shows in this town than most. <laughs> yeah. And what I learned about the noise scene, because although I don't listen to a lot of it, there's some that I really respect. And I don't want to be ageist, but a lot of the older noise crowd who's been making experimental music for years are very trained people, mm -hmm. like very trained, who are now at a point where they're dismantling music and building it from the ground up in strange ways. Yeah. It's not for everybody, but there's this attitude with the older academic experimental musicians where it's like they say there's five people in the crowd because everyone else is too stupid to get it. <laughs> yeah. And the young noise crowd who came from a totally different world than them, and some of them are really good. Some of what they do is like very, you can tell, is very interesting. And some of it's bullshit. Because it's easy to go up and just make feedback. Right. But they are, most of them are in the attitude where they want people to like it. They don't want to be exclusive. And although there's still a ton of people who are going to hate it, that attitude changes everything. Right. The attitude of, here's what I'm making. Here is my art. I want you to soak it in. I want you to like see if you like it or not. And if you don't like it, doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you don't like it. And... I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, and these guys have so much fun. They have so much freedom in what they do. And some of them have followings now. Like, just like the strangest music, but people really like it. Yeah. So talking about that kind of inclusive atmosphere, um, let's talk about rocking for dollars. Sure. Because I think that this is a really interesting idea. And the gigging, again, the professional gigging musician in me is like, um, well, okay, explain the concept first and I'll, I'll circle back. The concept is, um, it's kind of the first time in my life where there's no curation involved. Anyone who asks to play can play. And we do uh, eight bands a night, ideally, uh, every Monday at the Buckingham. And they book in advance. I never announce who's playing until they're on stage. <laughs> and they never know where they're, when they're playing until the band before them starts playing. They each do two original songs and one cover song with a full back line. And it's a night about throwing your taste out the window and just supporting art. And the crowd really buys in, and the bands really seem to buy in. Mm -hmm. And then everybody plays, we all have a good time, and then everyone spins a wheel to win money and prizes. Right. And it's, it's like most of the time a band can win like 400 bucks. Uh, it's 200 a week, and then yeah. it adds up. So next week, 600 If we nobody wins, it's 800 Right. Um, and then, of course, the best part of the night after every band is done playing. Oh, then we, like the punishment? 
You mean the hockey handshake is a oh, punishment? I thought, no, sorry, the hockey handshake is great. Oh, um, the hockey. <laughs> sorry, I thought you meant the spinning the wheel at the end because there's a lot of things that punish us as hosts. Oh, that's super funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. yeah. So like last week we had beer spit in our face by one band. <laughs> we had a buckets of tang dumped over us by another. I heard. I read your Facebook status on that the day after it happened. I had no context for it. So. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, okay. It gets sloppy. Like we get punished a lot. Yeah. And there's also a lot of contests where like you win money if you beat us at something. Okay. Um, yeah, so after each band finishes, we get the entire bar to line up, and they go and do a hockey handshake and shake the hand of every musician that played that night. And it's a, it's the funniest part to me because there's other Rocky for Dollars. This isn't an original idea. We stole it from a bar in Halifax who just celebrated their 11th anniversary of doing it. And uh, Calgary does it, and Moncton has, but it didn't work out. So... Mm-hmm. We kind of took our favorite elements from all of them and then added our own twist. So the hockey handshake is done in Calgary. And I don't want to say ours is better because Calgary's is awesome. But because we set the table as everybody on stage tonight to some degree sacrifices to make this art for you. So the least you can do is thank them for that. Right. Even if they're making art that you don't like. And so the hockey handshake, when we announced, tell the bands at the beginning about that, and then we announced to the crowd, the people who aren't there always giggle about it. But it's one of the most meaningful things, because as a musician, to have 50 to 100 to 150 strangers who shake your hand after you play three songs and tell you that your set was great feels good. Yeah. And no matter how many people are of the mindset that you do it for yourself and not for other people... It feels good to be told that what you're doing is making people happy. And so that's like by far the most meaningful part of the night. Yeah. Like so I was gonna say that as like a professional gigging musician, to do something where it's like, I'm gonna leave my house, I'm gonna pick up my gear, I'm gonna pack it up, I'm gonna bring it to the buck. Except you have backline, right? We have backline. Okay. So you're still showing up, doing your art for possibly free. Right. Everything in that, you know, kind of screams like getting taken advantage of, or whatever. The hockey handshake is really interesting to me because all of, like, that whole thing, that whole feeling that I have is kind of summed up in, like, all of the 60-year-old jazz musicians that are still kind of, like, walking around Edmonton talking about the 70s and the golden era and, like, bitching about how much money they're making now when they can get a gig. Right. And it does kind of seem like this whole backwards thing where, really, the handshake is what matters. The handshake is what matters. And there's other parts because I... I am not a stupid man and so (laughs) declare it mean it when when promoters tell bands that a gig is a good opportunity yeah they're most times wrong and exposure is a terrible thing to be paid in right and I rarely will do gigs that way and like I mean as a promoter you're careful like I'll have friends who will let's say ask to book a charity show with me and I'll say do you know bands because I can find you bands, but the only bands I will ever ask to do a charity show, unless they are already invested in that charity, are brand new bands who just need any gig. Right. I'm not going to ask a band who's getting paid and choosing their shows carefully to play a charity show. They probably get asked all the time. And I won't put someone in a position where they feel pushed against a wall by me to say yes to that. Mm. And so I don't like bands playing for free. And the only time I will make ask a band to play for free is if it's simply not in the budget to pay them, yep. and they know that ahead of time, or pay them minimally. I have no problem asking someone to play Rockin' for Dollars. And the reason is, 
we try to take a lot of the hassle out of it. We try to take a lot of, we provide the backline. So drummers are excited because how oh, many yeah. gigs can a drummer come to with just their sticks? Well, and it's the Buckingham, so it's the second floor. Yeah. So yeah, hearing there's drums there is, yeah. Yeah, and like even the guitarists, like guys who bring a big cabinet everywhere they go, well, you just carry your guitar, you know? And number one, you get to meet other bands that you would never otherwise meet. And the one thing about Edmonton as a city, and I can't speak for too many cities because I've only lived in a couple, but when I moved here, it surprised me how many bands who had a really big name in their own scene had no, never even heard of another band who has a big name in their scene. And I'm like, have you never even heard of them? Like, it would seem like you didn't like their stuff or you didn't go there or didn't know them personally, but like, you've never heard that band name? Both your bands get press. Both your bands are doing exciting things. So to bring this community together a little more is really important to us. Like, speaking on behalf of myself and Ben and Kurt, who all host it. Right. And that is like, number one, the biggest thing, bringing the bands together. That's the purpose. The idea's caught on. So we average about 170 people a night. And 170 people on a Monday is a crazy number. That is an insane number. And as a musician, depending on the type of music you can play, you can get gigs where you play to 100 strangers who don't give a shit, who are like eating dinner and ignoring you. And you can get a gig where you play to your 10 friends or maybe you have 50 friends, or maybe you have 100 friends who really give a shit. To play to 100 strangers who are actually paying attention is so rare. And to me, that's legitimately exposure. Yeah. That's legitimately opportunity, right? And it's legitimately career advancing potentially. And all these things, and then the hockey handshake on top of it, those are the things that matter. And the one thing we do differently than the other Rock for Dollars is never announcing the bands because I don't want it to be people being like, oh, is there good bands this week? If there's good bands this week, I'll go. Yeah. Are any of my friends playing? Well, you don't know if your friends are playing until you get there. You know, nobody knows. Yeah. And if you're in a band who is selective about the gigs they take, this one won't affect it. You know? So I'm really trying to push that on, like, the bands who are careful about their gig choosing. If you haven't been on stage in a few months, play Rock Over Dollars the week before your gig. You get to play to 150 people, and you get to say, hey, if you like this, we're playing Thursday at wherever, and it doesn't affect your draw to that show. Yeah. It's insane to me, too, where with any band that's kind of coming up, I've been in so many situations where it's like, we just want a room. There's We can't keep bringing out our friends. We just need a room of people that are just open to finding something new. And it's impossible. Like, there's no room really in the city that's going to cater to that specifically. They all have the demographic. They all have, like, this is their genre that they're coming out to see. So for Rock and for Dollars, like, it's insane to me that this is the key demographic of people that just want to hear something that they haven't heard before. Yeah, and you know, it, it's a lot, it almost goes beyond that. Like, it's not even with the bands, it's with the event. The vibe is good. Yeah. And the nature of it as well is that it's a Monday on Wait Ave when all the other bars are ghost towns. So if you're just out for a drink and you're like, wait a second, one bar is packed. And you walk up the stairs and it's like, hey man, it's a $3 cover charge. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's barely money. I'll pay that. <laughs> and then you come in and maybe you never watch shows. And there was watching these people who come in and you can tell they don't go to shows. And they're so excited and they're so happy to see what's happening. Like, that matters. And I had uh, it, the, the parts that are really meaningful to us. We always put aside a bit of money. Like, it's an expensive night to run. Like, between renting the back line, buying the prizes, basically the cover goes to covering those costs. Yeah. And... 
what we love about it, we had a guy on Monday. Uh, he's traveled from the UK. He's been touring, a touring musician for probably 15, 20 years. And played in like metal bands and shoegaze bands. And his friends have gotten famous. His friends from London have gotten very famous. And he's slugging away. You know, he's doing his thing. And he just did his first Cross Canada tour. He hit Toronto. Um, flew into Toronto. He's mostly bussing around to his other gigs. And he told me that the night before in Regina, he played to the bartender and the sound guy. Yeah. And he had to play Rock for Dollars, his only gig in Edmonton. And then he had to leave to go to Kelowna. Leave at midnight to bust a Kelowna to play where he played to seven people. So he arrived in town around three, and I was at the bar doing some work, and we start chatting, and we just hit it off. He's a nice guy. And that night, at the end of the night, I kind of pay him a little more than I pay most touring bands, but, uh, you know, he walks like 80 or 100 bucks. Yeah. And he's ecstatic. And he said this is what he needed because this tour of Canada between the long drives and the bad crowds has bummed him out. Yeah. And just being able to play, and he played fairly early because he had to leave. He might have played to 70 people. But he was ecstatic because it just the the vibe reinvigorated him. The people coming up afterwards and telling him he did great reinvigorated him. Yeah, and it's like that we're doing something right, man. If that's you know <laughs> if that's if that's this guy's memorable gig from his tour. Yeah, it's awesome. And I've had so many bands playing it who want to start it in their towns, touring bands, or like bands who by chance play here on a Tuesday. So I booked them for Rock for Dollars on the Monday, and the next time they come through, they make sure to play on a Tuesday so they can play Rock for Dollars on the Monday. Yeah, and that's awesome. So, with you, okay, I'm not, I'm going to come out early on, episode one, and say, I don't feel like I'm the most familiar person, like, boots on the ground with Edmonton's music scene. So, I'm going to make a sweeping claim. Okay. To me, it felt like the Wonder Bar, and I mean, I've only really been doing music for like 10 years. Right. Right. To me, it felt like the Wonder Bar was one of the first times where I think a lot of Edmonton music fans and musicians really came together with a pride for the Edmonton music community. I, you know what? I, I haven't been in Edmonton that long either. Yeah. I've only been here for eight years. So it was, it was strange to me that I never thought a venue could be that way. And I also, my memory of Wonder Bar is interesting because I'm, I, I saw it from a different perspective at, than most. I mean, I took probably extra pride in the good times because it was mine. Yeah. But also, I have a lot of bad memories associated with it of just like overworking myself and the shitting on the floor. The shitting on the floor. Craig which did, didn't happen that often. Craig didn't shit on the floor. Other people shat on the floor and Craig had to clean it up. But the shitting on the floor is almost just like symbolic of just like <laughs> there was so much that go in, goes into running a bar and I was doing it like with very little help most of the time. Yeah. And uh, like I left a lot of financial stress, and it led to a lot of like relationship stress and things like that. Like it was just it was tough on my personal life in do a you, big way. Do you have a hard time relying on other people? To some degree, I do. Um, I my I guess my thing is like, if you're gonna do something, if you're gonna take something off my plate, just grab it and do it. Right. And if I have to stand around and sort of delegate to you all the time and micromanage you, then I may as well just do it myself. Yeah. Um, I had some staff there who were amazing, who really helped, but it was, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of people, and it's always surprised me that people still care as much as they do. And now I'm actually trying to move past it a bit. Like, we all have good memories of that. But music scenes are weird. Music communities in general are strange because they'll, they move so fast. Mm. Like, you said you've been playing music for 10 years. There are people who I've seen in the past seven years of being involved in the music community here that went to their first show, completely fell in love with live music, completely had their lives changed by a musical community that they became part of, stopped going to shows and don't think about it anymore. Yeah. Like that it's a short lifespan. It's a short life cycle for a music fan. Because being the person who goes out five nights a week or three nights a week, that can stop at any given time. So there's a whole group of kids who like never went to Wonder Bar and I'm booking them now. Like we've been closed since last November. Yeah. You know, like that's crazy. Like in one year, there's a whole new cycle happening. So it's about finding something that's special for them. And also understanding that we're eventually going to be the old guys who are reminiscing about something that nobody else gives a shit about. The other thing is lots of people hate at the Wonder Bar. <laughs> like there's lots of bands who refuse to play there. Yeah. Like it wasn't for everyone, you know? Like, I mean, it, there was, there, I loved it warts and all. And part of why I booked like I didn't, I was, I've definitely been accused of being a snobby promoter in the past. And that's because for Wonder Bar, we didn't intend for it to be this way, but eventually became associated with me. Right. And I had business partners, you know, like, and one of them after a year said, this is your bar. Like it, we never intended it, but it's become your image and it's working and it's special and we like that, but it's yours. How did, how did that happen? Was it just because you were the most like visible member? I think at first it was because I had an understanding of how we should run a music venue, maybe more than they did. So like one of them was really into the short-term gain, examining the short-term gains of a night. So they'd be like, well, this band played and a hundred people paid and we rang out $2,500. And then the next night, 80 people paid to see this band, but we only rang out $1,000. So we should book that other band more. And I'm like, the band that played Saturday are making music that matters and could be super popular and legendary, and we don't want to be the band, the bar that didn't book that band. Mm. Like, what they're doing is quality. And so, therefore, it became really eclectic and really developed its reputation. And, like, booking, the easiest thing to do to run a local bar, like a small local bar, to be honest, is never book a touring band. Yeah. Right, like the touring band likely doesn't have friends here, you know. Like every band in town knows some people, but you have to. It's part of what you do, and that helped us a lot. It spread the name of this our bar all across Canada, and the U.S., which is weird, you know. <laughs> like, like it's just weird to me that somebody in Toronto knows my bar, yeah, and like has heard of it. Every musician in Canada of a certain age group of a certain or certain subgenres has heard of it. But, like, there was lots of bands who just didn't enjoy it because it didn't fit what they want. If they have high expectations for things like being pampered or for, like, high expectations for a great sound system, all those things, if their crowd really wants a comfy seating and good sight lines, I was not booking them because there were better rooms for them. Mm. And I think a lot of them took it as me not booking them because I was too snobby to book them. Yeah. I wasn't. I was probably. Too. <laughs> those, I probably think those bands are lame. But. Well, and I can totally say that, like, you would probably think the bands that I was in 
were lame. And I would totally own that because I would totally look at the Wonder Bar and I would think all of those things automatically of like, yeah, like the board is in a horrible spot to even mix in that room. Right. The speakers, I mean, who knows what's going on with those week to week? Are there going to be enough mics? Who knows? Because people can just walk out with them. Yeah. But you'd have to be totally ignorant of everything that was going on in the scene to not understand the importance of the Wonder Bar and the effect it was having on the culture here. Sure. So to go back to that sweeping comment, um, what do you think that has said about the Edmonton music scene in general, in the culture, like with how it grew up, with what it is now? Um, like, I, I also don't know how like close you, or how familiar you are with like a lot of different scenes around the country to compare it. Well, I think in any city of a certain size, using the term Edmonton music scene is a bit, it's a bit of a misnomer. And I use it myself just because it's lazy and easy. But um, the first inter- one of the first interviews I ever did with someone who's making a documentary, um, I, I think I was in a grumpy mood. So I was very honest. <laughs> and this young musician who rules, he's the nicest guy, was asking me questions. My answers were really dark. But he asked why the Edmonton music scene is so amazing, which I thought was a flawed question. (laughs) And firstly, because I don't think there is a music scene. Interesting. Um, I think there is a lot of bands. Like I showed you my band list. I think there was 512 bands on it. I thought it was 530, but Maybe 530. 530 bands in Edmonton that I know currently that are gigging and bookable. Those people aren't the music scene. It's all small groups of friends and acquaintances and they sometimes, there's like a nice Venn diagram where they mush together and they play shows, and sometimes they don't. And in any big city, I think that's the case. Like, if you like, um, one of my probably most influential people in my Edmonton music life, my existence here, is uh, a rapper named Touch, who, along with his DJ partner Nato, released critically acclaimed records years ago. Now, I'm not a rap guy necessarily. But we're Facebook friends, and he works along McQuaid, and I really like him. And everything that he says is brilliant. Uh-huh. And he just wrote something today that I saw where he said that he thinks the Edmonton hip-hop scene is strange because, number one, they don't play well with other groups necessarily, with yeah. other scenes, but also even within themselves, they don't. And I think that's kind of how big cities are. Right, it's sort of like there's lots of people doing stuff that you'll never hear of, and there's lots of people who carved out an existence completely separate of Wonderbar during Wonderbar's existence, and it's just like sometimes we just our orbits didn't align. Um, and so my answer to him was, Edmonton music scene doesn't exist, and it's so amazing because we're from here, and if we were from <laughs> Regina, you'd be making a documentary about why Regina's music scene's so amazing. Right. And if we're from Red Deer, you'd be asking me why Red Deer's music scene's so amazing. So we're all just lying to ourselves a bit. But in every city, there's great bands and bad bands. Anyway. So is that how you kind of like categorize it across the board? Like no city actually has like a music scene? I don't think so. I don't think any city does. Um, and people will assume they do, but it's like, uh, it's so funny because because of my job, I have learned quite a bit about other cities' music. And I remember sitting with uh, a band from Winnipeg at Remedy Cafe having dinner. 
And the guy's like, hey, man, do you book many bands from Winnipeg? And I was like, dude, I book so many bands from Winnipeg. Because I think probably in the history of my booking, I booked the most bands from Edmonton and then Winnipeg. Yeah. And then Halifax, then Calgary. <laughs> and Winnipeg's geographically in the perfect location for them to play Edmonton. Because for, if you're from Toronto area and you're in a band that has some acclaim, yeah. you can almost just carve out an existence mostly touring Ontario, Quebec, and the northern U.S. Yeah. And to drive through northern Ontario to get to Winnipeg seems daunting and crazy. And to go east from Montreal seems a bit silly too, although they'll do it sometimes. And if you're from Vancouver, if it's at all not the summertime, it's easier to go down the west coast than it is to come into Alberta. Right. And if you're in Winnipeg, it kind of doesn't matter. You're kind of <laughs> fucked either way. If you want to travel in either direction, it's a bit of a bummer. Yeah. But when you're going through Ontario, unless you have a big name nationally, you get you play Toronto, you might be able to get a shitty gig in Sudbury or Thunder. You'll play a bad one in Thunder Bay, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You'll play maybe a decent one in Hamilton or Kitchener or one of these cities, but it, it's, it mostly stinks. And then they're like, oh, we could go west and hit Saskatoon, Regina, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. Right. So a lot of Winnipeg bands come this way. And so I'm sitting with this guy and I was like, I booked so many Winnipeg bands. Oh, who have you booked? And I was like, oh, I booked this band. And the, the band I name is like nationally a pretty big deal. And he's a like, guy, I never heard of him. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And then I was like, okay, I booked this band, 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 this band. And these are bands with guys who like the members are talent buyers at clubs in Winnipeg. They're like guys who run cool festivals in Winnipeg. They're guys who've gotten national attention in Winnipeg. He didn't know any of them. And I realized at that, in like about 10 seconds later, that this band was a songwriter with a bunch of hired guns. Right. And one of the guys in the band would know all of those bands. And he was like, yeah, dude, you wouldn't know those bands. <laughs> and that guy I later booked in a bunch of other bands, one of the hired guns. But the other guy... It hit me that he's a musician in Winnipeg, and he hasn't heard of bands who I would consider the 10 best bands in his town because he's part of a different scene. Right. And I think every city's like that. You know, it's like you sort of like you'll talk to someone and they'll just have never, never heard of it. Um, okay, so cities don't have scenes. Do you think cities have sounds? No, not anymore. I mean... There's always within the community a bunch of bands who have vaguely sound the same. Yeah. Um, I think that people used to really want to find that. You know, and then, of course, when someone from a city gets kind of famous, there's going to be immediate copycats. And also, before that band got famous, they probably rubbed off on some of their friends. Yeah. You know? But when I look at, like, even... Like, I grew up in the 90s, of course, so I look like the Seattle sound. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but like, when they started, Soundgarden were kind of a hair metal band, and Mudhoney were kind of a dirty garage rock band, and like, Tad was heavy as fuck, and Alice in Chains were like, altogether different than the rest of them, you know, and like, Green River was sort of like, and Mother Love Bone, Mother Love Bone was kind of glammy, and just like... They, none of them really sounded the same. They used the same producers and stuff, so they had a bit of like a lo-fi, dirty sound. 
And then I'm sure as they started getting attention for that, you could see them all sort of coming together sound-wise a little bit more. Yeah. Because that was probably the smart move. You know, like, people were looking for a Seattle sound, so you gave it to them. And it's the same one, like, Halifax, which I followed a lot, when Halifax is supposed to be the next Seattle. And it didn't really happen. <laughs> and you look at, like, Sloan. Yeah. And, like, there were a handful of bands who were making, like, power pop music. And then... But like Sloan got signed because they thought they were a grunge band because they had a shitty recorded EP, you know? And then all of a sudden they were a pop band and no one in the U.S. bought their records anymore. Mm. And like then you look at the other bands from there, like like Thrush Hermit, like Joel Plaskett's old band. They were way different than Sloan. Eric's Trip were weird as fuck. So I don't think there is a city sound. And if I were to name the 10 bands in Edmonton that I think are maybe poised to be to have a career launch, none of them sound the same. What are the okay? Give me give me some names. Um, I think Provincial Archive could do it. I think uh, Craig Schramm's an absolute industry genius while still playing music he really believes in. Mm. Um, Scenic Route to Alaska, um, Fire Next Time. Nobody tours harder. They're always out there. Um, there's a bunch of young bands who I just feel like are just a few steps away. Like I think Power Buddies could do it. I think. Uh, Cham could do it. And like these, like Cham played to thirty people, but they could do it because when Mac DeMarco had a band here, he played to thirty people. Yeah, you know, um, there's tons more, and there's like people like Noella Charles, who I think is absolutely brilliant and like should be famous. Yeah, right, based purely on her hard work and the fact that she's super talented. Like, I don't know if it'll happen. I I don't know Noella's world, but I know that she should be famous. I never booked a show with her. She should be famous. <laughs> Um, I think Slates should be famous. Slates have literally done everything by the DIY punk rock handbook and have worked harder than anyone. They should be famous. I don't know if they will. Yeah. But like, I could go on and on, but none of those bands sound remotely similar. None of them would ever play shows together. Mitch Maddox should be famous. You know, that guy's a genius. Mm -hmm. But who knows? And I don't think Edmonton, like, if you look at the bands who have blown up out of here over the, I mean, even relatively blown up, like Purity Ring blew up. They don't sound like Mac DeMarco, but right. both of those bands blew up. I don't know. You know, there's like, I'm sure there's like country people who have blown up. You go, oh, what was that other band? Tennyson? You're Tennyson? No. I've never booked them. They were like, when they blew up, they were like a 19-year-old and his 15-year-old sister who made electronic <laughs> music. Yeah. And they were like, went from no one in Edmonton having heard of them to like headlining huge festivals. Yeah. Like they're massive in the, on a worldwide scale. And it's sort of like, that's cool. Like different than the Edmonton sound. Yeah. I don't think it's regional anymore. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense with not everything being on vinyl and you have to buy it in the city that it's in. Right. Everybody is just listening to what's in that city. So that makes a lot of sense. To, to branch off from music, sure. although I'm not entirely sure if, you know, it's going to be mutually exclusive or anything. So uh, I was reading a comment that you were making about Don Iveson recently, specifically right. the, uh, uh, I think it was a suit filled with wet noodles would stand up for itself better than he would. <laughs> yeah. So what was, so what was the, uh, the impetus for that? You know what? I was talking to a friend about this. One of my friends, sometimes I post things on Facebook that are just off the top of my head that I think are kind of funny. Yeah. But this one was that I have, like, an ego in some ways. Mm -hmm. And, like, my really close friends know what ways they are. And then in a lot of ways, my ego is either, like, something like it's non-existent. 
and then I'm very selfless, which isn't accurate. And <laughs> some people think that I'm very egotistical, which right. isn't accurate. Um, I think I'm just kind of normal and in the middle. But um, and actually, I was talking to someone a funny thing about this last night, where like uh, my I showed them the cover for my first double lunch compilation for the label. Yeah, and it's. The Sonic Youth Goo album cover, but with my face instead of one of the characters. <laughs> and they were like, you must have been captured a lot in drawing. I'm like, a lot of times. A lot of people have drawn me for various reasons. Yeah. And it's like, you should get an action figure made. And I was like, well, actually, I was talking to a sculptor who was going to make figurines of me, and we haven't exactly worked <laughs> it out. And, they, and the band who I booked, like who I booked a bunch, were like, oh, man, we'd buy those. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. That's why I would make them, because people would buy them. And uh, one of my pals when I talked about that initially, was like, fuck you, dude. Like, <laughs> this is my best friend since I'm a kid. And I'm like, what? And he's like, that is the most arrogant thing in the world. And I'm like, no, oh, whatever. Because in my mind, I would love to have a collection of figurines or action figures of everyone I know. I think that'd be so cool. Oh, man, that'd be creepy. It'd be creepy, but it'd be so awesome to have like a yeah. G.I. Joe collection of your friends. You know, like it'd be really <laughs> fun. Yeah. And, uh, the situations you could put them in totally <laughs> and he was like well i would never get an action figure made and i was like well nobody would buy it you know it's just like, <laughs> it was like it was kind of shitty to say but it's at the end of the day that's why we don't all have action figures made. right i'm not gonna sell a thousand action figures myself i could sell 20 you yeah. know and um but yeah, so this thing, the View Magazine Awards have been so interesting to me through the years because I think they're kind of baffling. Mm. Um, number one, it's decidedly a popularity contest. And so many categories, to me, just aren't votable. Like, okay, if you say to the average person, what's your best, the best cheeseburger in Edmonton? Over the course of a year or two, someone has tried probably a few different cheeseburgers. Yeah. But then they'll have categories like, who's the best realtor in Edmonton? And I don't know if there's anyone who's like, well, I have bought and sold homes through a number of realtors. <laughs> and the best one by far is Jerry. You know, right. like, or like, who is the best orthodontist? And it's like, that's fucking stupid. Because <laughs> the only person who's going to win is the person who pushes harder than everyone else to get that win. Right. In the past, I've tried not to push. Right. I never pushed. Like, back when I was doing comedy... Um, I won an award for that through View, and one of my friends gave me shit because what I was doing is I was pushing for Wonderbar because I think pushing for your business is super different than person pushing for yourself personally. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yo, don't forget to vote music Wonderbar for best music venue and best comedy club and this and that and this. Also, uh, I do comedy. If you like my comedy, vote for me for that. And my friend who's a comedian is like, yo, oh, you, it's shameless, <laughs> shameless, and I. One, but uh, <laughs> but it's uh, but even that I take with a grain of salt because the thing is, the average Joe in Edmonton doesn't go see local comedy, right? Right, there's a scene. So, if you take someone who avidly goes to see it, like the group who avidly goes to see local comedy, and they will then all split the vote, and then all the people who don't go see comedy know me and that I do it. And even if they've never seen me, they're like, well, Craig doesn't. I like Craig. I'll vote for Craig. So it's totally a grain of salt type thing, you know? Um, so Don Iveson. Don Iveson. He's beaten me twice for Local Hero, and yeah. I was cool with it. Because when he, before he was mayor, I thought he was going to change everything. 
and not everything because I'm not naive and I know how politics work. I know he doesn't have all that much power, but I feel like the vibe I got in Edmonton when he was running for mayor was like the vibe I felt when Obama first ran for president. I was just going to say, if you didn't say it, yeah. Like. Right? And the difference being a lot of Americans hated what was they hated George W. Bush. So he and I don't know if I don't know if Edmontonians hated Mandel. I thought they thought he was okay. Yeah, yeah. But Iverson came in and looked like he was going to do all the good things Mandel did. But also, he was like young and handsome and cool, and he got it, and he understood, and he was going to make Edmonton fucking perfect. And it's not that he didn't, because I don't, I can't name anyone in Edmonton. I don't know politics well enough. I don't know the counselors well enough. I don't know who would have ran that would have done a better job. But it just seems to me that he has absolutely no ability. And I, it's also hard because you have these big, rich voices barking at you. Mm -hmm. I, and a friend put it this way to me the other day. You have like these, these people, these corporations and these like rich motherfuckers who want things their way who are yelling at you. And then you have all of us who are like little puppies who are like yipping. Yeah. And we're just easier to ignore. And he knows there's going to be a black backlash. But at the end of the, the day, like a couple hundred 20-year-olds, or in my case, 36-year-olds, <laughs> like yipping on Facebook isn't going to ruin his day. Right. You know, like if he can keep the right people happier, make his day-to-day -day life easier, you know? But it just seems like he has just caved on everything. Like... All the decisions have been like wrong. The general direction seems wrong. And overall, the problem with politics is that what you need is to implement things that are long-term fixes, like in every way, on every level of government. There's things you could do to Edmonton that would be, this would be a good long-term fix, but we need to start now. Mm. But you're not going to see the results of that. Some guy 20 years down the road is going to see the results of your hard work. And in the meantime, you have to go through all the work of getting it off the ground and all the people fighting to, like, saying it's a stupid idea. I just think that he has accomplished nothing, really. Yeah. And I, I, and it's the expectation factor. If, like, some schmuck won it, some schmuck mayor, then I'd be like, well, look at him, schmuck mayor being a schmuck mayor, whatever. <laughs> but, like, he, we just had high hopes. And then I also look at Ninchi. I think the whole, the other thing that makes Iveson look bad is that Nenshi's pretty on point yeah. in Calgary. Like, whenever, what I love is he still keeps the rich people happy enough that he stays in fucking power. But the average Joe loves Nenshi there because he stands for the right things and he's outspoken about what he believes in and he's never wishy-washy. Yeah. And if he's ever undecided on something, I always feel it comes off as... When Iveson's undecided, it comes off as like, you know what? I don't know what way to lean on this. Let me see what the general reception is. Whereas Nenshi seems more like, I'm going to go and research this and figure out which side I'm on because I don't know enough about it yet. Yeah. You know, like it's not who's going to tell me what to do. It's sort of like, I'm just going to do it after I figure out what's the best way to go. And, and Nenshi has been so interesting because it's like being East Indian, being gay in Calgary, it's like the city has morphed to him. Yeah. Where Don, yeah, like, Iveson kind of came in and it was like he kind of just fit in already. Like he right. kind of felt like it was right. Sure, he can fit in anywhere. He's never not fit in. He, okay, you know what? You you absolutely nailed it there. And then I remember I've seen him so many times at different things, and it's like his quirk was that he liked Star Trek, and that's what everybody played off of to like yeah. familiarize and humanize him. 
And then he would do like the little like I'm I'm not a Trekkie. So the the Oh the, the, yeah, the, the Spock hands, thing. The Spock <laughs> thing. Uh, there's so many people that aren't listening to this podcast anymore because I totally fucked that up. <laughs> anyway, so okay, so this probably seemed like a really weird turn. Um here's how I'm gonna bring it back. Where I have a huge distrust of like politics and specifically in the arena of the arts. Right. Um, my little story and then I'll ask you, uh, the artery was closing down, right? Right. So I went and I wrote this think piece for marker magazine that I whipped and I tried to get as many people to look at as possible. Just about like the arteries closing, but honestly it's kind of a good thing because that venue was going to kill somebody at some point. Right. And then it was kind of a segue into the whole Edmonton live music initiative thing, blah, blah, blah. And so I was kind of looking around at other articles that were coming out at the same time. And there was one dude who I think is, he's trying to run for MLA or something. And he released a think piece for somebody and he was getting interviewed by CTV or he got interviewed by Global and I got interviewed by CTV. I can't remember. Anyway, so I read his think piece and it was just the most blatant reach for like, oh, I'm interested in the arts. This is who you want in office. And it right. was just the most inane, stupid advice for a scene he knew absolutely nothing about like oh we should have like rec centers out in like other parts of edmonton so that the cultures can come in and perform their music and it's like what are you talking about so the reason i asked this whole thing was that i also remember that you went to the after party for the edmonton music awards right i didn't you did not i went to the Edmonton music awards yeah like not this year but the year before okay i feel like i remember you saying something about like some of the people that were hanging around Oh, it wasn't the after party. It was just literally after the awards, people milling oh. around until they went to the after party. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> this actually started, this night sort of started an entire real distrust because when I ran Wonder Bar, I kind of had a me against the world mentality. And I assumed that all these politicians and stuff didn't give a shit. And they don't give a shit for the most part. Right. And it's so funny because. The way arts plays into politics, they're such strange bedfellows where, like, you know what? You could be a great politician and never have supported live music. You know, like, you, there's other things involved. More important things. Very, so I way think. more important things. <laughs> and what you mentioned about Ivison being a Trekkie was always kind of funny to me where it was like, I remember seeing some meme when uh, the provincial, was the provincial election? No, it was the, uh, yeah, when the provincial election was happening. And it was uh, a thing about Rachel Notley and how they asked her her favorite band in Edmonton. And one of the other party leaders had said Nickelback, their favorite band in Alberta. Oh, okay. And she had said Scenic Route to Alaska. Oh. And that's cool for Scenic Route to Alaska. And I think Rachel Notley is a cool woman. Yeah. Genuinely. But <laughs> the fact that she liked Scenic Route to Alaska and someone else liked Nickelback yeah. didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter. Right. Like, it doesn't matter. But what's funny is I'm at the Edmonton Music Awards, and I was presenting with MLA David Shepard. Yep. Who, um, I think I told this story once, and somebody shit all over me for because they know him and say he's the best dude. But anyway, um, <laughs> there's a bunch of politicians there from all levels of government, and a few who later kind of became part of that whole, like, maybe we'll fake save, like, space in the artery. And then they were like, actually, we won't. Fuck yourselves. But we'll start this live music initiative, and it'll solve everything. Wait, it's stupid. You know? Oh. And uh, 
But <laughs> I know like everybody involved with all of this, but I'm I totally value your opinion. Right. I, and I'll I'll clarify. Thank um, you. These okay. are blanket statements, but um, I'm at the Andrew Music Awards, and there was one counselor up. I think it was a counselor. I don't know him. I don't know enough about politics, but he had a cool intro where, because the Andrew Music Awards, I quite like. I think they're done. They're high quality. Yep. Um, I don't think they're an accurate representation of what happens in Edmonton. But gonna, I think I'm yeah. going to interject real quick because I was just sitting down with Brian Campbell, yeah, uh, who originally kind of brought this into being, and initially I was very much like, because I I was in a band that was nominated. And it was very much like we were one of like three blues bands that put right. our names in there. Like we had no business being in there. And then, you know, it was a couple of years ago and Brett Kissel kind of like swept the whole thing. And it's like, well, of course. Like, so is this for the little guys or for the big guys? So I was asking Brian, like, what is the idea here, really? And he just said, you know, I just look at it like it's a prairie town with a bunch of bands and it's a way to get them all in one room together. And from that point on, it was like, I love this. And for me, I think the reasoning was I was sort of a. Uh, I I had one time uh, ran my mouth on Facebook because it was a few years ago, maybe their first or second year, and I was like, it wasn't that of the seventy nominees, only four had played at Wonder Bar, right? That bothered me. It was that besides those four, there was only three others that I would let play at Wonder Bar. <laughs> and as I got to talking to the people who run it. And they approached me like the next year and they're like, do you want to be involved? And I'm like, not fucking really. <laughs> and they're like, here's the thing, you know bands, it's a free it's free to nominate someone. It takes no time. It's very easy. Yeah. And we know we're not yet an accurate representation of what's happening in this city, but we never will be unless people start nominating bands. Right? Like we can't we it's not our job to like go out and hand pick and beg certain bands to to apply. Like we can only pick out of what is who is applying. Right. And I'm like, that makes sense. And I believe in it a bit more. So I try to convince people I juried for them. I don't want to say that. I did not jury for them. But uh, <laughs> then I was a presenter last year. So we're standing there, and I'm impressed with how beautiful the event is. I thought it was just like, because it seems like when I watch a real award show that it's just so fucking high budget. Yeah. But for probably not a massive budget, they make a pretty cool looking night. Like everything about it's fairly top notch. Nothing looks cheap or shitty. Well, and it was at the Windspear last year, right? I never went to the Windspear one. I was oh, at that the was museum the most recent still. one. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd imagine the Windspear one was beautiful because oh, the museum. Geez. The only thing that looked tacky about it was the museum. <laughs> um, so this one counselor got up and he said, "The three biggest moments of my life were the day I met my wife." the day that my first child was born and junior gone wild saying they're getting back together. Ooh. And I'm like, he seemed to say it with some sincerity. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, I was presenting with David Shepard and he was sort of like, Oh, I'll, I'll. I was like, Hey, I'm Craig. I'm, I'm presenting with you. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and then he got up and like, Oh, I'll go first. I'll introduce myself. And he gets up and he's like, ah, David Shepard, local MLA. I'm here on behalf of, uh, the NDP party and the NDP really care about arts and culture. And I do as well. And the city is a vibrant, wonderful community of amazing artists and talented musicians. Uh, we hope to continue to help this scene prosper and blah, 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 blah. Here's the award for, <laughs> and I'm like, cool. <laughs> so you didn't even get on. He, it, then he presented his award. Then I'm supposed to introduce myself oh, okay, and present okay. my award. He didn't hug the mic on me. Right. And then I got up and said something along the lines of, 
Hey, my name is Craig Martell. Um, I'm not running for office right now. I hope it's okay that I'm up here. <laughs> um, I do put on 300 shows a year. Yeah. And uh, everybody comes up and talks about how vibrant and incredible our music community is. And I want to disagree with that. Edmonton has a lot of bands. Most of them suck. <laughs> a lot of them are good. Some of them are amazing, just like every city. However, and this is something I genuinely believe, and I've said a million times, that... Up until recently, Alberta was a place where any of us, what you're doing now, like with this um, interview, you could not do this and choose to earn a fabulous living working in the oil field. Right. And anybody, especially musicians who are willing to put that security aside to chase their dreams, get more respect out of me than in any other city in Canada. Because when you live in Montreal and there's no work available anyway and your apartment's 200 bucks a month, you may as well be a fucking artist. <laughs> but when you're in Edmonton and you could be very well off and you're choosing to make very little money, that's impressive to me. So it's not that our bands are better. It's the fact that anyone here does it at all. Right. Um, anyway, afterwards I went to talk to another counselor and he just wouldn't give me the time of day and that bothered <laughs> me. And like, I was kind of annoyed by the whole thing. And... Uh, yeah, and then that led to, and I, I so I kind of had this idea in my head about a few politicians that night, where I'm just like, fuck those dudes. Right. And then when Space was getting uh, told they had to leave, that bothered me a lot, because I really like Clinton Will, and I like what they did there. And what bothered me more than if the city said, go fuck yourselves, it's our building, and we're going to do what we want with it, was them... Being like, oh man, seriously? Oh yeah, that's it sucks, it sucks so much. We'll come over to your place, let's hang out. And they all went and hung out and crushed beers at space. And yeah. they're like, Yeah, man, like we're gonna have we're gonna work so hard for you, we're gonna work so hard for you. And then Clinton will put all the work in the world in, and then it came time to it, and nobody helped them. Yeah. And to me it's like that was them wanting to look like the guys who cared. And the Edmonton Live Music Initiative, which I briefly bashed. Um, what's the name of the guy who runs that again? Tom Bennett. Love Tom Bennett. Tom Bennett's uh, Tom amazing. Bennett's an amazing dude. And while we're talking, I'm going to go back. David Shepard, also a fantastic person. I'm sure. Yeah. And, I mean, those instances of public appearance with politicians, I don't think are ever the best to judge them. But right. I can, I can, yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from with that one. Anyway, and, Tom, Tom Bennett, Elm. And when that first came out, I posted something quite scathing. About their first meeting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, because you were there for that, right? No, the first one I didn't get invited to. Okay. Um, and that's what the scathing thing was about? Kind of. It wasn't <laughs> necessarily me not getting invited. It was just about the ideas they had. Right. Because I thought all of them were so grossly flawed. Mm. Like, and so obviously flawed. Like, as a guy who's run a music venue, that it would not have helped us at all. Like, staying open till was it 3 a.m.? Staying open till 3 a.m.? Yeah. Which, like, if you actually do any research has been attempted in different parts of the country and has failed fucking miserably in every one of them because running wonder bar i've never ever 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 had a night where people were like oh man it's two already we have to leave we want to stay and spend more money every night it was like the band finishes at midnight the bar clears out and i'm like man i wish they stayed till one yeah you know and then it comes down to ideas like what do you consider a music venue and whatever your answer is, all of a sudden, every douchebag bar in a good area of town, 
that's busy is going to find a way to worm through those rules so they can stay open until 3. Right. Anyway, all these ideas, and I posted something about, like, you old white fucking suits with your, like, <laughs> harumphing around the room and jacking each other off, haven't been to a real music <laughs> venue in years, coming up with dumb ideas, and then not inviting anyone who's part of the grassroots music community to that meeting. Because that was what bothered me. Is right. like, it wasn't that I wasn't there. It's that, like, Deviate didn't get invited. Um, Starlight Room didn't get invited. You know, like, that's crazy. You know, like, Say We Want Starlight's been around forever, and they run two big fucking rooms that have a huge history in the city, and they didn't invite them? Yeah. And then one of their ideas, I think, was the uh, try paying for half of a band's pay for one night a month on a trial basis at three different venues. And the venues they picked were like, Yellowhead Brewery, The Needle that's not open yet, and Blue Chair. And I'm like, do you think that's the sampling of, like, one of them's literally not a venue, one of them's not open yet, <laughs> and won't be for months. Yeah. And the other one is run the most specific weird way, like Blue Chair. Like, Blue Chair's not how the average venue runs. I've I've heard some stories about how the music is run there, and it's like, I've I, specifically what I've heard is, like, when you talk about, like, you're a snob. Yeah. I've heard some, I, I don't remember the name of the owner. But like he's made some very specific demands of people that are like, I don't know if I can do that. But just the idea of like it's a where old people go and sit down and buy dinner and pay like you know also like, that it's like a, it's a brunch restaurant. Totally, and so <laughs> it's like, but it's funny because it's like yeah, that's so again so obtuse. So I went to the meeting and the the interesting thing is everybody has everyone involved had good intentions. Yeah. But then, even when they surround themselves with venue owners, oh, the second one they made sure, I think a member of the Edmonton Arts Council, who was a very valuable member of the underground music scene here, said, you have to invite everyone. Yeah. So I'm sitting around a table, and it's literally the owner's representation from every venue in town, plus some like old promoters and people, like everyone. And it was like herding cats. It was the least <laughs> valuable meeting where, and it was so weird because it was like... They'd be like, and why do you, like, eventually, at first it was everyone shouting over each other. Right. And finally, Tom's like, everyone has a turn to talk. Your turn first, your turn first. And it was like, if you just took a table of random people and you're like, how would you improve the world? <laughs> and that person's like, well, I double my salary and make women like me. Like, how about you? And it's like, well, women already like me, so I don't think that's an issue at all. And I make a ton of money. But what you should do is if we had purer cocaine, because right now the cocaine doesn't get me high anymore. How about you? Well, I don't do cocaine anymore because my nose rotted out. But I think that TV sucks right now, and I wish they'd bring back The Wire. The other guy's like, well, I never made it through season one of The Wire, but I get where you're going. Game of Thrones, done forever. And... And it was just like everybody's problems were so specific. And at the time, Wonder Bar's closed. I'm completely independent. Yeah. And I tried to propose an alternative, a long-term plan. And it fell on the deafest of ears. And it might be because it's a dumb idea. But I think it was because everyone wants short-term gain. Right. Right. And I told them, like, even, like, subsidizing venues. When I was running Wonder Bar, the city said to me every month, here's an extra $1,000. I would have been like... That's really a kind gesture. I still don't have any money. Yeah. Right? Like, it wouldn't have changed anything. And the two people, people types of people who own venues are rich motherfuckers and dumb people like me. And <laughs> who are poor and stay poor. Right. And so the $1,000 doesn't help us. If you give a rich person $1,000, bucks, you are like, that's cool. I do like thousands of dollars, but it doesn't help me either. Right. 
So I was like, what we need to do is we have to look around our community and see the things that are wrong with our community, our music community. Number one being that our talented young people tend to move away. That's huge. Like, every year, every summer, this summer, in this August, I probably saw 25 members of the local underground music community move away. And these people age like 18 to 25. Yeah. And these people play in bands and go to shows. And that's just who I know. And I wasn't even paying attention. You know, like, <laughs> they're the people who, like, invited me to their going away parties. Yeah. That's crazy. Number two, none of us understand what it's like growing up today in a world where your phone gives you access to every bit of music being made in the world. Where DJ culture is taking over in a big way as opposed to live music culture. Yeah. Um, where people are comfortable um, staying home, where there's not as much emphasis on drinking as there used to be, where, like, when I was 18, the minute I turned 19, Nova Scotia, when the minute I turned 19, me and my friends were at bars all the time. But now with, like, drinking and driving regulations and things like that, there's just less of it. Like, yeah. there's still tons, but there's less. Um, so I was like, what we need to do is find a way to keep our young people here and to interest them in music from a young age. And I think that in every way our city fails our youth. It fails them because when I saw Mac DeMarco play at Wonder Bar, if you told me he was going to be famous, I would have been like, sure he will. Like, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant performer. I wouldn't stake my money on it because you never know, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Right. He was never written about in the media here. The city never did anything for him. He didn't play a community event. Purity Ring is the same thing. Until they were famous, nobody cared. Now yep. the city like pay them huge money to play Churchill Square. But there has to be ways for the city to do it to engage these people, to help them along. You know, and I I don't see the city doing it. I have I have no idea what that would be though. Like I, to me, it just kind of comes down to like a, a lack of demographics. Maybe, but I think it also what could be very useful is. When we were chatting earlier before the podcast, yeah, and I was talking about what my ultimate goal for double lunch is. I thought the city should start a centrally located, high quality, all the bells and whistles, all ages, multi-purpose music room. Yeah, and you could do it in a way where almost, uh, almost like, uh, hmm, oh, it looks bad that I forgot the name of this, the jazz place up on Gateway Boulevard, Yardbird. Yardbird? Because Yardbird functions some degree from community donations. Is that true? Um, it's volunteer run. Volunteer run. Is the big thing. Okay. Um, I'm. It must be, there must be some donations. I think it's a non nonprofit. Right. So I was like, I was thinking back to like when I was just 15, I started going to shows. And my parents would drop me off at a hall that's rented by another kid who's 15's older brother. <laughs> yeah. And we hope nobody pukes everywhere and we hope nobody destroys the bathroom and doesn't let us do shows there again. Right. And I was like, if they knew I was going somewhere safe, like a drinking and drug free place where I could be around music, my parents gladly would have donated to that just to give me a place to go. Yeah. But the kids whose parents aren't there or can't afford to, to give them a place to go and to give kids like, and these things, a lot of these um, things exist all over town already, like instrument donations where like if you can't afford an instrument, they will get you an instrument and you work it off with volunteer hours. Right. 
right? Like, you can give lessons, you can give grant writing workshops, you can give media workshops, you know how to write press releases? Well, we'll teach you how to write press releases, all on site. Yeah. Right? So everyone has this potential leg up. Um, and advice, just advice from knowledgeable people. Like, I love what Alberta Music does. I think they're incredible. But at the end of the day, when a band's like, hey, I want to apply for a grant, Craig, how do I do that? I'm like, well, first you sign as a member of Alberta Music. You can do it, and their office is located downtown. And they're like, <laughs> like I'm already lost. You told me to go downtown. Um, yeah. But to have it at a place where they are anyway. Yeah. And I just think something like that would be a better long-term investment. And, like, there's city runs all ages venues all over the country, and they, they're effective. But just have something like that where it could, like, the young people feel appreciated. It bothers me when I read an interview with Mac and he doesn't say he's from Edmonton. Yeah. And Mac's not a dickhead. He's the nicest guy in the world. But at the end of the day, he was, like, lived here for a long time. But Vancouver and Montreal and New York have all provided him better opportunities to support him better than Edmonton has. Anyway, that was my idea. No, it was and, and I was good. like, and then ten years from now, you reap the benefits. All of you venues reap the benefits because you have more clientele to to pick from. And everyone's like, but we want money now. Yeah. Well, whatever then. Is it just that it creates a bedrock when they're young enough that by the time they're twenty five? Because I, I I I also just wonder about like maybe that's just the time to go, and I don't think that people are ever appreciated in their hometowns as they are as much as they are outside in different cities. Maybe, but I also look at other cities like Halifax. People move from to they move to Montreal. It's a pretty natural move. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's economic in some way. Where like it's hard to get work in Halifax and it's expensive to live. Yeah, people from Winnipeg and Saskatoon don't seem to move. Especially the musicians I know don't seem to move nearly as much as Edmonton. Right, Calgary not nearly as much as Edmonton. There's so many like established. People have been in the Calgary music scene for years. And Edmonton has a few, but like they have a lot. Yeah. And so I'm like, why are people not leaving Calgary and they're leaving Edmonton? What's the difference? Like you can make a living out in Edmonton and still make your music. They're leaving for a reason. I think they're leaving because Edmonton kind of sucks. And I love Edmonton. I love it warts and all. Yeah. But there's lots of ways where it sucks because when you are part of the art scene here, you feel like you're just like the like David fighting Goliath constantly. Yeah. Like the city's not helping. And that's the thing is like all these things are just all these things add up to you feeling this way where it's like venues closing and them just seemingly not caring. And not only not caring, but like when it comes time for someone to open up a venue, they have to the city makes them go through so many such a rigmarole to open a room. Yeah. Like you can talk to like the ninety nine ten crew Mercury Room, Sewing Machine Factory, a nightmare. And it's like all they want is a place for a band to play. You know, like they're not even expecting to get rich, rich off it. They're just like expecting <laughs> to like do it. And the city won't help them. They'll actively try to stop them. Yeah. And so it's like rather than sit in a meeting and discuss all this, why don't you just like make it easier to become a venue? You know, like don't make it harder for these people who want to do something stupid to do it. Yeah. Which is waste their time and energy at the end of the day right now. <laughs> but I mean, I, I feel like for a lot of people, it's it kind of comes down to like when I, two years in a Wonder Bar, I said there should be a Wonder Bar in every city. A place like that. And then like when that fails, when we can't sustain an 80-person music venue that was countrywide beloved. Yeah. There's something wrong, you know? I'm going to close. Yeah. With something. So... I mean, over over the years that I've been able to get to know you, yeah, you might be 
a horrible booker, but it's because you put the bands first. Right. Okay. And you're an amazing human because you know that and you do it anyway. Right. <laughs> so, and I think anybody listening, you know, anybody that knows you. Right. Uh, first off, on top of like, you know, deserving the view, you know, award and how you became the the face of Wonder Bar. And I think like definitely all these things are deserved. And I think a lot of this came from your heart for the community specifically and the musicians and putting these things above just trying to make things work. And I think that anytime somebody comes is from Edmonton or is in Edmonton and is anti-commercial right. to a certain degree, it gets picked up on. And I think because of the way that the city is just kind of like very business oriented. Yeah, I agree. Um, the, the second that you find somebody that, you know, is willing to kind of put themselves out like that, um, it gets picked up. So what I'm wondering is if you kind of like, like, where does that come from in you? Is it like how you were raised? Is it like an experience you had? I don't know. Um, I think uh, <laughs> part of it was me kind of not taking my own advice in some ways. Like when I was growing up, my family's wonderful, by the way. Like <laughs> they they raised no, me. I was saying they were. I know, but I want to mention this beforehand. Like part of it comes from them. Yeah, my parents are both very selfless people. Yeah, like like I've seen them do stuff their whole lives that I would deem selfless. Mm-hmm. My sister, I was sort of like as much of a black sheep as I'm not. I wasn't a huge black sheep. I wasn't a ton of trouble. But like my little sister is like the most badass human in the world. Mm-hmm. Where like. She was involved in like she started getting involved in like school politics in our small town. And then she was like part of like um entrepreneurship awareness groups where it's like a bunch of old businessmen and then her at sixteen. Yeah. And like just she was keen, man, like just the smartest kid in her class, like really, really did it right. Um and so by comparison, I was sort of just like the slacker who never quite lived up to what he should have been. Right. You know? Like everyone's like, oh, you got good marks, but you should have had the best marks. I'm like, yeah, I don't like studying. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> like, I'm gonna go to university and take engineering. Oh, I don't like this. I'm taking English. I don't like this either. I'm dropping out. <laughs> and my sister is a special needs teacher, and she uh, is incredible at it. Like, what she does blows my mind. Yeah. So I think there is a natural thing in my family for people to do that, but also, I hated growing up where I grew up. It was a town that. I dare say hated art or at least had a very strong indifference towards it. Mm. Um, there was no music really. Like there was like a band class. We didn't have like a drama class. Like that wasn't an option, you know, like arts were secondary sports were first and I love sports. Yeah. Big basketball fan, like some other sports, but I always felt like I didn't fit in and all I wanted to do back then was fit in. Yeah. Like when I was 16, it's like, oh, I would have killed just to have been the normal dude for my school. And I wasn't. And it, like, bro, I had the, I was like the shyest, weirdest kid when I was growing up. And then, uh, were you like 6'4 when you were growing up too? Yeah, I was 6'4 in high school. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. yeah. And like just miserable all the time. And uh, then I remember going to university and I was like, everything's going to be different. So I drove 10 minutes from my parents' house to the university. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> everything's pretty much the same. <laughs> like, the cafeteria is literally like every town has a table that all hangs out together and nobody yeah. 
mixes. Then I went to the campus radio station, and I've been involved in the music scene to some degree before this. Yeah, I went to shows. It was hard though; it was hard to convince my p- friends to go. Like until like, I'd be like, "Let's go to this show in Sydney," and everyone's like, "Well, we could just hang out in our town." I'm like, "Yeah, I guess we'll do that." So I went to a. I'd been to like maybe a few dozen shows. And then once I hit university, I went to the campus radio station. I started meeting all these people who came from similar towns and similar situations. And they had the guts younger at a younger age to sort of be like, fuck everything else. I'm doing this. Yep. And then I got to meet these people. Uh, it's funny. The two biggest people that have influenced me from a young age were uh, this guy Rod and this guy Daryl, who are from Cape Breton. Hmm. And Rod... If I remember, and I'll make him listen to this, and he will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think <laughs> he's quite—he's a bit older than me, yeah, like substantially, and he's really old. And uh, when he was young, his sister, in the late '70s, early '80s, went over to the UK, found punk rock, came back, and brought Rod all these punk rock records when he was in high school. So he was like the only punk, yeah, in his high school. He later went on to run the campus station. He started a festival that I still exists today. It's like 25 years old. Jeez. Like a, th- uh, a little festival during Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. That has had some pretty amazing bands brought into it. He, as far as I know, released or was part of the team that released the first compilation of Cape Breton Underground music ever. Um, he's part of the team, I think, that did the second one as well. Um, he did had like a promotion company and the guy's DIY as fuck and he was he kicked against the establishment in Every possible way, you know, like he also somehow got the local modern rock radio station to give him an hour each week Yeah, and he said an hour. He's playing like weirdo punk rock and like noise music and crazy shit and uh, Now I see him and he's living back in Cape Breton. He has a beautiful wife and he's living in this like part, kind of the forgotten part of Cape Breton, and he is just giving it to politicians every day. Yeah. For every time they fuck up, he's on them. And meanwhile, while criticizing, is doing things like, uh, "Yo, this area over here that has an old tennis court. That tennis court. Why don't we use it?" Well, politicians like, "I don't know." So he's like, "Okay, <laughs> I'll mow the grass around it. I'm gonna paint it. I'm gonna get nets. I'm gonna put them up. Hey, yo, we have a community tennis court now." Yeah, you know, like he's actually doing things, and it's so inspiring. From a young age, him and Daryl, and Daryl did the same. Daryl's been a promoter in Evans or in, sorry, in Halifax or in Cape Breton, Jesus, since I was eighteen. You know, I'm thirty six, and he's still doing it. Yeah, and watching these guys be completely selfless, and they could do anything else, and they both gone about in different ways. Like Rod works in the oil field, you know, and like makes money for his family, but he still is so community-oriented. He's very anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. And I guess I feel like I've always rooted for the underdog, and I think Edmonton's music community, arts community in general is the underdog, you know, like more so than most cities. Yeah. Where, like, some cities, they take their art and culture, and they're like, they hold it up like a trophy. In Edmonton's, it's just like... It's a dirty little secret almost that this happens. <laughs> but when cool people come to Edmonton, I promise until they're shown the cool underbelly of Edmonton, they'll think this city sucks. Yeah. And the bands who see the underbelly and meet the people that make it happen, and there's hundreds and thousands of us, like, they want to come back. 
Yeah. You know, like I met again the guy from the UK the other day. He was here and he saw Buckingham. His Edmonton experience was literally nine hours of the Buckingham. And he's like, I want to stay so much. I just want to hang out with all of you and I want to be part of this. Yeah. And like the band from Chicago who played the other night at Sewing Machine Factory, who were a big deal band, they saw Buckingham, they ate, they saw Sewing Machine Factory, and I took them to Pharaoh for breakfast the next morning. They're like, Edmonton's a goddamn cool town. <laughs> they saw three places. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I, I think that's where I just get it. It's like I surrounded by chance and meant I was able to encounter people who show me it's okay to do what I want and that if people are trying to stop cool things from happening, they shouldn't be allowed. I love that man. And hopefully, probably, you do too after listening to that whole conversation. If you did get this far in the podcast, thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited to bring more people to the limelight that maybe you haven't heard of or maybe that have moved away but still love the city and still want to comment on what Edmonton is to them and what it can be in the future. Uh, to check out more of the podcast and check out more from The Teardown, you can visit theteardownsucks.com. Again, that is theteardownsucks.com, where we have links to all our social media so you can stay updated with what we're doing. There's going to be an archive of all of the podcasts that we have that you're going to be able to find on iTunes as well. Uh, we're going to have pieces from musicians and writers, little articles that talk about their experiences and commentaries on the Edmonton music scene, along with a section for anonymous road stories from musicians that want to tell stories that maybe they wouldn't be able to tell because they're just too connected to it and it's a little too embarrassing. We'll also have album reviews and just anything, everything Edmonton music community-wise. That's going to be it for this time. My name's Caleb Caswell, and... Until the next podcast, I'll see you at the gig.